Free Bit of Twill will be discussing the second sequel to Jurassic Park One Minute Time. I'm Brad. And on this episode, we'll be talking about Minute 13 of Jurassic Park 3. Dave, ready to get into it? Sure. All right. As we ended Minute 12 of Jurassic Park 3, the rapid prototyper had finished, and Billy removed it and showed Grant, and then blew through it, and we heard a shrill sound. As we open on Minute 13, Grant smiles, remembering the sounds the raptors made on Isla Nublar. He takes the resonating chamber from Billy and says, Wow, this is brilliant, Billy. It really is. But it's sad to say it's just a little bit late. At the 12 second mark, we can hear footsteps on gravel outside the tent. And then we hear someone call Dr. Grant's name. And we turn to reveal Paul Kirby, standing in the tent doorway. He introduces himself as Paul Kirby, from Kirby Enterprises, and offers him his card. And looks past Grant and says, How you doing, Billy? The two men leave the tent and walk out into the dig site. And Grant asks Paul, What can I do for you, Mr. Kirby? Paul says he's a great admirer of his work, and that he's a business proposition for him, and then asks Grant if he'd like to have dinner with Paul and his wife, and it'd be their treat. Grant says that he's tired and he's been travelling, but then Billy tells Paul that they'd love to, and Grant shoots daggers in Billy's direction. At the 45 second mark, we cut to a pool table, and Randy Newman playing in the background out of a jukebox. And as the minute ends, Grant and Billy find the Kirby's booth at the back of the bar, and it's introductions all around as they sit down. As minute 13 opens, Billy's still blowing away on the resonating chamber there. Um, and the sort of the sound we're getting, you can sort of hear that, that scratchy, snarling sound, but if, especially if someone like Grant, who knew what the animals sound like, you're sure you'd be able to start changing the pitch, changing how fast or mm-hmm. how hard you're blowing through it, um, and you'd be able to probably tune it in a bit to, uh, to get that sound. Mm-hmm. One of those shrieks. Which well, would be terrifying. <laughs> the field museum actually you meant you brought up last minute like the Parasaurolophus. The field museum actually had a or I think it still does, has this thing where you press a pump and it blows air through a um para, uh, replication of the Parasaurolophus's uh crest there. Mm-hmm. And the if you press down on it harder, the pitch gets higher. If you do it slowly you get the pitch gets lower so like exactly as you just said. Yeah, yep. Well, yeah, and sort of going off what we were saying last thing too, with the with just scanning skulls and that, you'd, you'd think by now, and I'd, I'd assume by now, that they've been able to reproduce a lot of sounds that animals could make, if, mm-hmm. especially the horned the horned ones, if they had those bills or those internal nasal cavities that were still sort of intact after fossilization, and that sort of makes me wonder why now in a Jurassic World era where we're still combining dolphins and zebras together and <laughs> all that, you'd think there'd be a, a lot more of sort of knowing or being able to tell a lot more of what the animals actually sound like instead of mm-hmm. elephant and dingo and <laughs> whatever else they did. Mm-hmm. We especially know later on when, when Grant gets to the island, he sort of has a go at it himself and if he wasn't interrupted here by the Kirby's, he probably would have had a go as well and tried to make it sound a bit better, but we'll get that to that mm-hmm. towards the end of the film. Uh, I mean, at least they did sort of keep continuity. Um, I was remissing, I can't remember whom with uh, earlier this week, that we just don't hear the dolphin scream anymore. We don't. Yeah. We we kind of heard a hint back to it. I know I heard some dolphin sounds when Blue was uh, backing up Owen in Fallen Kingdom. 
but we don't get that loud, high-pitched scream that they used to make in the first two movies. Hmm. Yeah, we got it. I think we discussed this in when we were doing the Lost World minute when we got to the Raptors. But in um, Jurassic World, when uh, Omar Sy, I don't know uh, Barry, mm-hmm. when him and Hoskins are with the Raptors in the in the cages and they got their heads restrained, and Hoskins is there and you can hear I think it's Echo or Delta do one of those screams oh, at the transition. I forgot about that. Yeah. It's weird because their mouths are strapped yeah. down. So yeah. you know <laughs> That's what we that's what we said at the time. The fact that you got that scream in the transition yet all four raptors are there contained and harnessed. Mm-hmm. And and not able to open their mouths, so <laughs> But yeah, that and that's that thing. And it's sort of as I've seen discussion the last few days as well, just the difference between air quotes wild raptors and what we get in these newer films where yes, the DNA is probably different. They're, they're recloned. They're not probably the same animals as what we got in the original films, but um, just how that, we don't really see any wild dinosaurs. It's all sort of even in Fallen Kingdom where they've been on their own for four years. You think of how some of the animals presented in the Lost World when they were on their own for four years and now in Fallen Kingdom... It's sort of like they're still acting the same way as they did if there was visitors and gyrospheres mm-hmm. rolling around between them. Yeah. Anyway, back to the minute. <laughs> Smiling, Grant sort of takes a prototype from Billy and says, wow, this is brilliant, Billy, really it is, but I'm sad, but, um, I'm sad to say it's just a little bit too late. So I, don't, yeah, I don't know how this would make him any money. It'd be a good little research, and we know he's sort of studying the vocal side of things of raptors, but... It's it's obviously not enough. He's been around trying to um, gain money and showing showing what he's researching, and no one's interested. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of it's a good little it's a good little side side project, but it's not really going to help in the long run. Anyway, I don't see unless they can then take what they've learnt there and apply it to other animals and even other other body parts, I suppose as well, maybe. Because I wonder even if something like the eye socket or something. Mm-hmm. But that's. Um, that's when behind Grant we hear a man's voice calling his name, and Alan turns to reveal to reveal a man wearing sunglasses standing in the opening of the tent, and he puts his hand out. Paul Kirby, Kirby Enterprises, and then offers him his business card. <laughs> <laughs> it's so simplistic in design. You could have had like a stack of a hundred of these made up for twenty bucks, you know? I we haven't got there yet. I know there's you can on eBay. There's people trying to flog off um, a Kirby Enterprises card. Yeah. And I don't... Unless unless a prop's come up somewhere that I haven't seen, I don't know where people are getting that design from. Because you don't see it here. You're right, because we never do see it. Hmm. Unless... So, yeah, I don't know if there's just some behind the scenes or... Yeah. There might be, because I know there's a couple props out there that we've gotten, quote-unquote, reproductions from. Hmm that we just never see like um there's i think an engine bottle or something with the label on it and we just never see it in the movie we have but there's reproductions of you can print out the label and slap it on a water bottle if you want it is that the lab it's got the like the lab stats on it or something yeah with the 1994 mm. that um evacuation date or 95 or something like that yeah I think we might we might discover some of that when we get to the water truck and what what Eric's been collecting there. Because I think there's some stuff like that in the background. Maybe. Um, 
Or it might be it might be just more that that sort of background set filler stuff for the lab that was there and never you never sort of put on screen. Because mm. I suppose, well, suppose we'll get to it when we get there, but we know how much Spielberg had the operations center sort of dressed out. Mm. Um, I don't know how much they went to work on the lab as well, but I suppose we'll get there when we get there in a few weeks' time. But um, then he looks around Grant and says, "How you doing, Billy?" Which this little interaction doesn't make you think Billy and Paul have spoken to each other before, because he, he sort of knows Doctor Grant and sort of calls Billy by Billy, not Mister Brennan or Billy Brennan. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of just makes you wonder if, if those two have had words before. I know it does because not only that, but they do seem. I mean, not only are they on a first name basis, but we do seem to hear this. The way that he talks about them when they're on the plane later, he turns to uh, Cooper and asks, "So how do you know the Kirby's? Like, like they're they've been friends for years, you know?" Yeah, and, and especially too, like, it, it, when we get to the script and novel comparisons, yes, he does, and it's it's never sort of shown here in the film, apart from these little hints, and um, especially when he's sort of he's the one that's pushing Grant to listen to what they have to say to take him up on their offer and and do all this stuff too, like knowing exactly what the offer's going to be. Or at least know at least know that they're rich, or think he knows that they're rich anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll get to that in a minute with the with the novel and script stuff. As Paul and Grant leave the tent, he says, first thing, I'm a great admirer of yours, and I have a position I'd like to discuss with you. Would you have dinner with my wife and me this evening? It'd be our treat. Which... Sort of a dig, sort of knows how in the bank or in the hole Grant is, and says, "I'll come have dinner and I'll pay for it." <laughs> just, just to entice him there. But mm-hmm. Alan replies, "That'd be great, but I'm tired. I've been travelling. Maybe some other time." And just throwing that fake smile there, just trying to find any way he can of getting rid of him. <laughs> but Paul says, uh, "Believe me, it'll be well worth your wild." And behind Paul, Billy comes up after leaving the tent and. Is walking towards him before Alan can say, and if any answered, would love to. Which, again, sort of just pushing, <laughs> pushing Grant to be involved here. And... We never get to see it, but I would have loved to have gotten like Grant just shooting him a dirty look, <laughs> like, "Come on!" <laughs> oh, I reckon we get something that's pretty close in the in both the novel and the script here. When um, when sort of. Paul's telling him it would be well worth your while and facing Grant. Billy's actually behind him rubbing his fingers together, doing the his loaded um, symbol with his hands, which they never show in the film, which is a shame. Mm. Um, replies, terrific, and looks back at Billy, and we get a slow zoom in on Grant's face, and you can just see these shooting daggers at Billy. He's not even looking at Paul. He's looking straight at Billy. <laughs> uh, and again, that, that sort of frightening look that Sam Neill gives. But um, before we move on to the um, the bar, William H Macy, well known actor, second build in the film behind Sam Neill. Uh, we sort of discussed him a little bit when we done minute one, minute zero, looking at the trailer and that. I sort of know him from um, his goofball roles, like goofball, yeah, goofball roles like Wild Hogs, um, stuff like that. But he's known for a lot more famous, famous stuff, and he was sort of fairly active during the time the film came out, and has been pretty active ever since as well. I think the first role I ever encountered him him in was Air Force One with uh, 
Harrison Ford. <laughs> Get off my plane. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and um, then I then it was uh, I I knew him a lot again in like wild less serious roles like Fargo and Wild Hogs. Mm-hmm. But what what I'm currently know most for right now is the TV show, the Showtime show, uh, Shameless, which is set. Irish Chicago t- uh, family who live in the slums of Chicago, and I mean you watch him in his role, or you watch him in Fargo, and sure he's a knucklehead goofball, hmm. but then you watch him in Shameless, and this guy, I mean he is a shyster, like the biggest shy, the biggest piece of crap you'd ever know. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> I mean he, I mean he like constantly is using his kids to just scam people you know wow. I, I mean, you just look at them and you know you, I mean, you know the character and you think alright what what stupid scheme is he up to now <laughs> I think the latest one in the latest season was he uh, got he got a senator to come out of retirement so that he could be his campaign manager so that he could steal the campaign funds for beer money. <laughs> exactly. Well. And then, of course, it backfires on him, and the guy actually somehow gets elected. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I wonder, that could have made this film a lot darker. If if he purchased the tickets for Ben and Eric to go parasailing and then called Enrique to say, whatever happens, make sure they get stranded there. All pardon elaborate ruse to get back with his wife. <laughs> no, but they could have they could have made uh, this guy the vil- uh, more villainous than he is because in the in the final movie he comes uh, both the Kirby's come off as very sympathetic people who um you feel sorry for because yeah they're they're divorced the son had got and their and the wife's uh, boyfriend gotten gotten a uh, tragic parasailing accident and they just want their son back and it's all wishy-washy no they could they could have made this guy like a real piece of work yeah and it all it all goes back to sort of the spielberg influence where and it's it's in nearly every film he does where it's always the broken family the divorce and the the kids and everything else like that and it's sort of you'd think here where joe johnson's taking over but because Spielberg's still in that executive producer role and still sort of really calling the shots behind, we, we see the same thing in Fallen King or Jurassic World as well, where even mm-hmm. though Colin's in charge, it's sort of he's still bringing themes, heavy used themes by Spielberg. But do you think he'd be a good way of getting away from it? Yes, we're going to have this average family and they're going to be sympathetic, but maybe there's a little bit of a darker, darker side here and a, a good reason why they're broken or split up. But. Mm-hmm. No, it's just because he's a um, he's a goofball and she totals three cars in three months, <laughs> whatever the <laughs> line is. <laughs> I suppose just bringing bringing the films back to basics and just having that those everyman everyman people again. Yes, you got the couple of mercenaries for the action side of things, even though it doesn't really come across. But just um, it could be anyone on this island, and this is how they got to what they got to do to survive. Yeah. But we're not on the island yet because we cut. To a bar and a pool table, and Randy Newman's on the jukebox singing away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it always—I—I I got the the soundtrack pretty early on. It always 
amused me about how we got this Randy Newman song on the end of a, a, a score, <laughs> like a composed score soundtrack. I haven't. I didn't actually look into the song at all, but I do believe it was sung, like composed for this film. Which was is, it? Yeah. I thought it was a Randy Newman song. They just got the rights for. All right. We um. It's still playing. Next minute, I might Google that before we <laughs> record. Next minute, so it might report back on that. But oh, yeah, I always thought, uh, obviously referring to um, Grant's hat. Mm-hmm. But um. No, no, no I, it's. The, it's funny because I mean you do say that and the lyrics do kind of match the scene a bit because big hat no cattle that's the Kirby's they got all this talk in front of them but nothing to back it up oh I always thought it was Grant the Cowboy but he's got no cows <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go yeah good point that's that's sort of suggesting more that definitely was written for, for the movie but yeah that's what I was thinking too we'll have to find out about that Anyway, they walk into the bar as the music continues to play and come over to the Kirby's booth and it's introductions all around. And as the minute ends, they go to sit down. But um, briefly, or not briefly, looking into the uh, novel side of things and script comparisons, um, we start to get some interesting extra bits with the script here. Uh, As Billy's blowing on the resonating chamber, we actually cut and see a flock of birds outside um, fly off scared, which... (laughs) is an interesting thing and maybe a little bit of a callback back to the Lost World novel where you always hear those cries mm-hmm. of birds off in the distance. Oh, oh yeah, well, I, um, in every Jurassic Park movie, Whoa. We, I can't remember, I haven't found it in Fallen Kingdom yet, I'll have to look for it so next time I rewatch it, but we get a flock of white birds mm. either both seen or heard making these sand, and they're like CGI birds, they're not your real birds. <laughs> In the first movie, you can see him on the back of the um, Brachiosaurus's back. In the second movie, we get him twice. We first we see him when the T-Rex are moving through the forest underneath the um, high hide, and they mm. fly off, and we can hear that the sound of them. Then we just hear the sound of them again later when the male T-Rex is coming into the camp. Yeah. And in this movie, uh, you can see you can see him. But don't hear him on the again on the back of the Brachiosaurus. Mm. But I think you also see him in the um, no no you don't see him in the uh, river scene. Oh, but then you do see and hear them again in the uh, final uh, showdown in Jurassic World where they are um, where the T or not the T Rex the Irex uh, scares him off as he's moving through the forest. To the trap that engine is set for. Mm. Yeah, well, that's it. When we brought it up, when we we're discussing that minute in the Lost World with the Tyrannosaurus walking through the forest, just how it's all CG and foley work there, and obviously, obviously, someone in the production <laughs> loves those birds. Mm-hmm. It was like kind of a running gag in the Jurassic Park movies, which I've always liked. Well, I can't recall. Are they sitting in the tree that the Rex knocks over when it comes through to? to get the Gallimimus as well. I seem to think there's birds in that tree as well, but it might just be the tree sort of flying apart as the Trenosaur pushes past it to get the Gallimimus that's stripped over. I can't remember it. I have to watch it again. Yeah. Because I also seem to think later on when we get, after they leave the aviary and Grant and that look back up at it as the fog clears, that there's birds flying over the top of it there as well. Yeah, there are. Yeah. That's all right. (laughs) We'll get to that when we get there. But I just found interesting that they're sort of, fly off scared when they hear that even though it's just Billy in a tent 
not really making a lot of noise, just how much that sound carries. And mm-hmm. Well, something I do like, uh, I'm not sure if it was co- if it actually was there or if he added it later on, is that when, um, in the first movie, when Grant is talking, uh, making that raptor speech to the kid, you can hear in the background a hawk go, uh, crying. Hmm. You can hear the hawk cry, make its cry when, as which we know, hawks are members of the bird of prey of, <laughs> of birds. And he's given the speech about raptors, which are which means or velociraptor, swift uh, or raptors, birds of prey. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. That he so sort of the, names that within seconds after hearing that in the background. <laughs> yeah. So that could have been another callback to the first movie. Hmm. Also, too, when um, after Billy sort of takes the resonator, oh, Grant takes the resonating chamber off Billy. Billy looks past Grant to see a man whooping, get, whooping, man and woman getting out of a Cadillac out in the dig site, and Cheryl's pointing them in Grant's direction. So he sort of sees them arrive, and we don't just get the um, them Bill Paul arriving at the tent here, but Billy says, mm-hmm. oh, "I forgot to tell you, some visitors wanted to come by and talk to you. I told them you'd be happy to see them, maybe even have dinner with them, which." It's weird that he's sort of really putting it on now where he's already organised dinner and invited him out without even telling Grant. <laughs> Which makes me wonder, like, 2001, okay, he hasn't Googled Kirby Enterprises to sort of know who who they are, but... Um, it wasn't even Google back then, it was Ask Jeeves. Yeah, well, I think I was on Yahoo. I had my Yahoo mail, <laughs> email by then, but... Yeah, so again, it just sort of adds to that mystery of how how much Billy knows the Kirby's and how long he's been talking to them, where he's, they've um, already asked him if they can come out and visit the site, see Grant, and one of them's proposed the dinner, the dinner meeting as well. But um, Grant replies, absolutely not, and Billy says, well, <laughs> too late, they're here. And Grant says, what? And that's when sort of he realises that the two people who are walking up to meet him, he puts on a friendly mm-hmm. smile and Billy goes over to meet him. And Paul Kirby sort of talk, um, described as being a talkative optimist with no off switch. <laughs> His wife Amanda Kirby, just as friendly, is hard to read. There seems to be exhaustion behind her eyes. And sort of both the script and the novel sort of puts that across that Amanda Kirby doesn't seem to be... Um, her mind doesn't seem to be on the, the current topic or she seems tired behind her eyes. So it sort of alludes to the fact that she, there's something else she's worried about more than what's going on at the moment. And I think mm. when we get to the next minute with some of her line delivery, it's sort of after oh, she's like two commercial flight uh, seats to the first uh, flight to the moon. She sort of just sort of thinks about it for a moment, then goes back to her dinner. It's sort of <laughs> she's not really concentrating on what's happening in the here and now. Mm. But the rest of the conversation goes the same. But when Paul asks to have dinner behind him, Billy's rubbing his hands and uh, thumb and forefinger, like I said before, signifying that uh, the Kirby's are loaded. And um, Grant then musters up a weak smile and says, it'd be my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when we cut to the bar, it's described as Hell Creek Bar and Grill. They're only halfway through the entree, but Grant is already ready to bolt. And he's, um, he's, it's only Billy who's keeping um, from being rude and leaving. But uh, in the novel, we get the same bit about the Kirby's car pulling up. Mm-hmm. And after after agreeing to have dinner, it's said to be an hour later that they're seedy ordering food with the Kirby's at the bar. So this must mm-hmm. have been very late afternoon when they're filming in the, the dig site. 
Um, yeah, it, it, well, it was. It was, um, if we remember, the shadows were pretty long over the dig site. But it, interestingly, I swore you could see daylight over uh, through the windows of the front of the bar, which actually does exist, by the way. Okay, yep. There's really a Hell Creek Bar and Grill in Jordan, Montana. Oh, nice. I just, I just Googled that. I remember there was a bar at that location that they filmed at, but I couldn't remember if the if, if the name was right. But, yeah, there is. Yep. <laughs> well, as they come in to sit, you can see the, the pinball machines and that in the background. I wonder, obviously now, some years later, I doubt it would be there. Probably not even have the same owners. But um, I suppose there would have been a time afterwards where you'd go there and It'd be really funny if that Randy Newman song was on that jukebox. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's all I've got for uh, Minute 13. Anything else you want to discuss before we get out of here for the week? Uh, No, I think we're good. Alright. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at lostworldminute.com. The main website is drasticminutes.wordpress.com and you can find the Lost World Minutes and Drastic Minutes over on Facebook with the... uh, pages there. David, where are you on Twitter and Instagram? Uh, Twitter, we are at Jurassic Minute. Uh, Instagram is the Jurassic Minute podcast. Some of the worst things imaginable have been done with the best intentions. This is how you make dinosaurs? This is how you play God. If we split up, I'm going with you guys. Dinosaurs lived 65 million years ago. What is left of them is fossilized in the rocks. And it is in the rock that real scientists make real discoveries. Now what John Hammond and InGen did at Jurassic Park is create genetically engineered theme park monsters. Nothing more and nothing less. Uh, Are you saying that you wouldn't want to get onto Isla Sorna and study them if you had the chance? No force on earth or heaven. Get me on that island. You're Desky. Hello? Charlie! Charlie! Hello? Charlie, take the phone to mommy now! It's the it's the dinosaur there! Okay. Yeah, I should have, if I had more time, I would have researched just to see if they if surely they've been doing scans on fossil skulls and that. And Sue, Sue, that when they did that, I think that was around this time too. It was mm. like early two thousands, late nineties. Yeah. Because they yep. did it after the skull came to the field museum, and but before I think they completely cleaned it up. Because mm. the images that they showed on the exhibit that they had showed it was still encased in rock. Yeah, I do remember those photos of it being encased. And then I suppose that's the thing they'd want to do to do the scans of it just to make sure everything was there before they took it out of the rock. Because it's one of those things if that's missing half its skull, mm-hmm. and if you got enough in the rock there, it's probably probably a better specimen of being left in the rock than taking it out. It was, to... it was also being advertised as the world's most complete T-Rex ever found, you know? Yeah, so yeah. That was something else that could advertise it, you know? We got the first CT scan of inside of T-Rex's skull. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I remember that being big at the time. Mm-hmm.